This is Jamda on the go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for a BPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda on the Go for November 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Katz, co-editor-in-chief of Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Today, we're delighted to have the opportunity to also interview the authors of two articles in the November issue of JAMDA. Dr. Katz is professor of geriatrics at Florida State University and also serves as medical director for Westminster Communities of Florida and Presbyterian Senior Living based in Pennsylvania. He's a past president of AMDA with a research focus on medical staff organization and its relationship to quality. He's a certified medical director with over 40 years of clinical experience in nursing homes, assisted living, and outpatient geriatric care. So today your editors have chosen three articles that we'll be highlighting from the November issue that we think will be of particular interest to our audience. These topics include a paper discussing current challenges in determining the appropriateness of initiating antibiotic therapy in nursing homes, a discussion of a novel antipsychotic drug reduction program, and finally, the results of a systematic review and meta-analysis of de-prescribing interventions. And we're so pleased to have a couple of the lead authors with us today. Dr. Stephen Pozar is a senior author on the paper, Antipsychotic Drug Reduction Through the Implementation of a Neurologically Oriented Interdisciplinary Psychodiagnostic and Antipsychotic Stewardship Program. Whoa, that's a mouthful. Uh, Dr. Pozar is the founder and CEO of GuideStar Elder Care, a multi-state medical practice dedicated to the care of neuropsychiatrically impaired long-term care patients. Additionally, Steve serves as clinical professor of geriatric neuropsychiatry at St. Mary's College at Notre Dame, and he's the founder and president of the Stephen L. Pozar, MD, Elder Care Foundation. Uh, these organizations are dedicated to research, education, and advocacy benefiting this disadvantaged population. It's an honor to kick off today's discussion with Dr. Joseph Malat on a topic I know is dear, near and dear to many of our listeners' hearts. Dr. Malat is the author of the article, Determining the Appropriateness of Initiating Antibiotic Therapy in Nursing Home Residents. Dr. Joseph Malat is a professor emeritus of medicine at the Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, University at Buffalo. He was a full-time faculty member of the School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences in the Department of Medicine and the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University at Buffalo from 1980 to 2010. From 2006 to 2015, Joe was an attending physician and medical director for several nursing homes in the Buffalo, New York area. He is a fellow of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, IDSA, Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, or SHEA, and the American College of Physicians. Uh, Joe retired from the practice of medicine in July of 2015, 
Although I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, you've been pretty busy since you retired. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, like a, a pretty prolific uh, writing career, I guess, uh, research and so on. So anyway, uh, welcome, Drs. Katz, Malat, and Posar. Thank you. All right, so let's get rolling. Dr. Malat, can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your past experience in post-acute and long-term care? Yes, I can. Thank you. Um, well, as, as you noted, I uh, practiced uh, infectious disease for most of my career, and it was done exclusively in the hospital setting. I got involved in geriatrics in a somewhat circuitous manner. My wife, Kathleen, uh, is an internist with certification in geriatrics, and she was in a group practice with other geriatricians working in nursing homes and assisted living facilities uh, starting in the uh, mid-1990s. Her group was also in charge of an inpatient unit at the hospital where I was based, taking care of residents admitted to the hospital. Uh, in the later 1990s, the group uh, was looking for an additional physician to uh, work on the unit. And at the same time, I was I uh, lobbied unsuccessfully for additional salary support uh, with my uh, department chair. So I decided I would uh, start working on uh, the uh, inpatient unit for additional salary support. And I worked on the unit from 97 until 2006. Uh, during that time, I continued my infectious disease work at the same time. I also, uh, during this time, uh, I published multiple studies based on patients admitted to the service dealing with pneumonia uh, and bloodstream infection, as well as antibiotic-resistant organisms. I also published studies of antibiotic use in long-term care facilities. Uh, from 2006 until I retired in 2015, my entire focus was taking care of residents in nursing homes, mainly doing post-acute care. So that's uh, my the basis for my experience in post-acute and long-term care. That's great. You know, uh, infectious disease docs are sometimes hard to come by. It's hard to get them to come into our buildings. And uh, uh, I know for a lot of our listeners, if we're fortunate enough to have a uh, an ID specialist that we can run, you know, a little coffee cup consult by that can be so, so valuable. So, uh, Anyway, um, so what was your impetus for exploring this issue? Yeah, it. Um, this is kind of interesting. In the in the past twenty years or so, studies have been done of antibiotic use in nursing homes that have suggested there was overprescribing of antibiotics in, in nursing home residents, and that most of the prescribing was unnecessary or it's been termed inappropriate. Uh, the concern was that this unnecessary treatment would lead to unintended consequences such as allergic responses, C. difficile infection, and antibiotic resistance. So in response to these concerns, CMS, in its revision of the conditions for participation, required that nursing homes have an antibiotic uh, stewardship program that included monitoring antibiotic use. So most of the listeners... Uh, really uh, under, understand what's going on now regarding that. At the same time, the CDC developed core elements of antibiotic stewardship for nursing homes 
that allowed them to develop uh, this program that included a component for determining appropriateness of antibiotic prescribing. However, determining appropriateness of antibiotic use in nursing homes has been a major challenge. One example of this is a difficulty in identifying residents with urinary tract infection, which I'm sure all the listeners are aware of, that led to the publication of eight different decision tools for the diagnosis and treatment of this infection in the past 20 years. Uh, I actually reviewed these tools in a paper in the journal Drugs and Aging in 2021. After writing the paper on urinary tract infection decision tools, I I realized that there had not been an analysis of the literature dealing with studies of appropriateness of antibiotic treatment in nursing home residents, and this resulted in the JAMDA paper. I want to make sure that the people keep in mind that there are several components to the antibiotic prescribing process uh, that uh, need to be addressed. The first one is the actual decision to initiate treatment in an individual resident. The second uh, component is choosing the antibiotic. The third is choosing the dose, especially in elderly uh, residents. And finally, how long do you treat or duration of treatment? In my review, most studies of the appropriateness of treatment, uh, antibiotic treatment in nursing homes focused on the first step, that is, decision to initiate treatment. However, uh, the decision to treat is can be highly subjective because of a lack of standardization of the clinical diagnosis of bacterial infection in the nursing home setting. In addition, obtaining history from some residents is difficult due to cognitive impairment. Uh, this results often uh, uh, in initiation of treatment based on non-localizing signs and symptoms, that, uh, for example, change in mental status, falls, decreased appetite, and so forth. Uh, thus, uh, there's a significant impetus to evaluate appropriateness of antibiotic treatment in nursing home residents. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot, and and thank you for uh, reminding us all those different kind of steps and parameters that go into uh, a, a given course of antibiotics for a particular individual resident. But it seems like this study focused on uh, the, basically the criteria for initiation of of antibiotics, and I, I'm wondering uh, how do you think these findings might impact clinical practice? I, I noticed one of the things you said was that the surveillance definitions shouldn't be used to evaluate appropriateness. And maybe you can get into that a little bit and ex explain what that, that's all about. Uh, yeah, I think um, uh, to, to uh, discuss first uh, issues related to the uh, impact on clinical practice. Um, after uh, reading this study, prescribers in the nursing home setting should have more insight into the prescribing process. In particular, I want to emphasize two components. Uh, after initiating uh, antibiotic treatment, prescribers should reassess a resident after two to three days of treatment. This has been termed the antibiotic timeout protocol. Uh, pause, yeah. At, at that point, the prescriber should, first of all, evaluate the response of the treatment and also evaluate any diagnostic studies, cultures, imaging, and so forth. 
And based on that, those uh, results and evaluation, decide whether or not they should continue the regimen, change the regimen, or stop treatment. Uh, if it's decided to continue treatment, the decision on duration of treatment should be determined at that point. We don't have time to discuss duration of treatment in any detail, but uh, suffice it to say that most common bacterial infections in a nursing home resident, like pneumonia, urinary tract infection, skin and soft tissue infection, do not need to be treated longer than seven days. To get quickly to your uh, question about surveillance definitions, uh, as it turns out, surveillance definitions have been used commonly to assess appropriateness of antibiotic treatment in nursing home residents. Uh, and uh, at this point, it's clear that this should not be done. And the reason for that is as follows. Surveillance definitions for infections, whether it's the hospital or nursing home, uh, are designed to be spe uh, highly specific to minimize false positives. Uh, and therefore, the sensitivity of these uh, criteria are, are low. So they should not be used to assess appropriateness because of that. Um, and uh, But it, nevertheless, they've been used for that purpose uh, inappropriately. So that's, that's, the, that, that's the point that's made uh, very specifically in the paper. Yeah, so let me ask you about that. So uh, I think a lot of uh, facilities and companies use, let's say, like Loeb's criteria or McGeer's criteria. Uh, are you saying that those shouldn't be used to go, when you go back and look at uh, whether or not it was appropriate treatment for a particular resident? All right. The the um, no, there's uh, two uh, the, there's two surveillance de uh, criteria that have been developed. The first is the McGeer criteria developed uh, and published in 1991. Uh, Allison McGeer was the spearhead of that uh, at the University of Toronto. That's why it's given the, the label McGeer criteria. Uh, these were the first uh, surveillance definitions. Those definitions were revised in, uh, and published in uh, 2012 called the revised McGeer criteria. Uh, full transparency, I participated in, in that particular revision. Uh, the Loeb criteria um, are criteria that were uh, published in 2001. I also participated in the, that development of those criteria. Those criteria were specifically designed to use to help uh, providers in nursing homes uh, to uh, in the decision to initiate treatment. So the, those the Loeb criteria. Uh, are, have been used also to uh, uh, assess appropriateness, and and that's that is correct. Uh, the problem with uh, the low criteria is is they focus on very specific signs and symptoms of infection, and the problem that we deal with in uh, trying to use the low criteria is twofold: the lack of documentation in charts of signs and symptoms, and also uh, trying to get uh, signs and symptoms accurately from people with the cognitive impairment in the nursing home setting has been difficult. So this has limited the uh, use of the low criteria uh, for assessing appropriateness accurately, in, in my view. So that's uh, so the low criteria should be used. I should also note 
uh, that the low criteria are in the process of undergoing revision, um, but it's only early in the process, and I don't expect uh, the revision to be published um, for any time soon, probably in the next one or two years at the most. Great. Uh, you know, thank you for all that. That's really, really uh, valuable information, and I, I hope that'll help some of our listeners, including myself. <laughs> um, so uh, what uh, would you suggest as a next step in research here in this arena, if any, and uh, take-home messages for our listeners, you know, anything they could implement uh, uh, that that will help address this other than stopping using uh, the McGeer criteria for uh, uh, post hoc sort of determinations of appropriateness. All right. So the, uh, the, there are several things, including stopping the, um, you know, the revised McGeer criteria, as you already mentioned. Uh, the, the, the critical thing is um, uh, develop a standardizing and validating clinical definitions of infections uh, in the nursing home setting. Uh, this has never been done um, in the nursing home setting, unfortunately. Uh, and I already mentioned the revision of the low criteria. This may be very useful in that standardization process, but it's going to take some time. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, I discuss in more detail the rationale for this revision in the JAMDA paper. Um, the, the next thing I want to mention is that the methodology for assessing appropriateness, the actual hardcore, how do you do it, uh, needs to be standardized. Uh, the, the, the standardization of, of how you identify the study population in assessing appropriateness is critical. Do you use infection logs? Do you use uh, antibiotic logs? Do you use uh, inf uh, information collected by the infection control preventionists. This needs to be standardized, and studies need to be done prospectively. Um, and lastly, and probably most importantly, after you do all that stuff, is that providers and nursing home staff need to be educated regarding these criteria and and how they and how they're going to be used to assess appropriateness. And that's because you, we, we shouldn't be trying to assess appropriateness of treatment unless the providers and staff know what the criteria are and they actually use the criteria. So there's very little evidence that, uh, the people, uh, that the people prescribing antibiotics in nursing homes actually use the low criteria, which have been available since 2001. So we need to educate them uh, about these criteria, whatever whatever we come to, whatever we decide is the appropriate criteria. That's great. Thank you for that. Paul, uh, any questions for Joe? Yeah, you know, I think um, Joe, he's really suggesting a paradigm shift, which is going to take some time. I guess my question relates to... Um, the the typical infection control preventionist in uh, you know in a hundred bed nursing home who um, has been using either McGear or the Loeb criteria to determine um, like incident rates. What uh, is are they under the is the is CMS forcing a particular approach in order to determine appropriateness or as you as what I'm hearing you suggest, it's really up to the facility to, uh, to determine that. Well, that, that's been the problem. Um, 
each nursing home is on their own. The, 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 the issue is that the, the, the comments by CMS or CDC say you should do it, but they don't prescribe how to do it. And that's, that's why, um, uh, you know, I got into this in the first place, um, uh, saying that we need to standardize you know, crit clinical definitions of infection and, and methodology for assessing appropriateness and so forth. It's a, it's a major problem. So everybody is on their own, basically. That's what it comes down to. Uh, the, um, in terms of, you know, just doing infection surveillance in, in the nursing home setting, uh, facilities should be using the revised McGeer criteria. They're designed for that purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, the, uh, the whole issue of surveillance in, in the nursing home setting is also, um, can be problematic because, uh, a lot of times, uh, nursing home, uh, staff doing infection control tend to get bogged down in the nitty gritty of, of, of doing surveillance and miss the forest for the trees. The, for, the, the what, what nursing home uh, practitioners should be focusing on um, is uh, surveillance for the, the, the common infections causing morbidity and mortality in a nursing home. That is pneumonia, urinary tract infection, skin and soft tissue infection, and C. difficile infection. Forget conjunctivitis, fungal infections of the skin, uh, that, that sort of thing. Uh, those are minor uh, compared to these other uh, more important issues. Um, so um, uh, the other issue, uh, if, I may, if I may digress into something else regarding surveillance, um, is that uh, the practitioner doing infection, the uh, preventionist doing infection control surveillance in nursing homes uh, tends to focus too much on the actual surveillance process, which is important. But what's even more important is analyzing the surveillance data after it's collected. That's what's been missing a lot of times in, uh, in, in my experience as a consultant, as an infection control consultant for multiple nursing homes in the, uh, that, I would, that I did uh, when I was uh, actually practicing. So, and, and I don't have time to get into it in detail now, uh, but analysis of the uh, surveillance data is, is a critical, critical issue. Uh, and again, uh, the, the CDC has finally, in the past probably five or to eight years, finally developed uh, a surveillance program uh, like they have done for hospitals. Um, the hospital program was developed in the early 1970s, and it wasn't until around 2012 or so that they uh, developed the program for uh, nursing homes. So that's in its infancy, the nursing home uh, network uh, that they, they've set up for uh, infection surveillance. So uh, it's a, it's a uh, work in progress in terms of surveillance activities in nursing homes. We've got a long way to go, clearly. Uh, that's been some great discussion and perspective. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed On The Go. Uh, our second paper for discussion today is Implementation of a Neurologically Oriented Interdisciplinary Psychodiagnostic and Antipsychotic Stewardship Program. 
Dr. Stephen Pozar is the senior author of this study. And Steve, I know we've met a time or two at some of AMDA's annual meetings, but uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your team? Sure, thanks. Um, personally, I've had a uh, uh, longstanding interest in, in systems of care which uh, earlier in my career uh, took a, a little bit of a, a detour. I, was, I served as the medical director of Cigna Health Plans of Los Angeles and then medical director of Blue Cross of California. Won't hold um, that against you. Yeah, you know, I, I tell you, it was a dirty job, but somebody had to do it. But uh, frankly, just missed the clinical contact. And when I left there, went back into clinical practice of geriatrics and developed an active interest and curiosity in the neuropsychiatry of frailty and dementia in LTC settings. And that's, that's been something I've been pursuing. And then eventually, about 15, 16 years ago, refocused so that that's all we did. And then developed uh, a large multi-state practice that's uh, entirely dedicated to uh, serving this population at the bedside. And one of the things that we were fortunate enough to be doing is we were sort of on board as a bunch of science began to come in looking at the, uh, if you will, basic and, and early stage clinical science related to uh, neurocognitively impaired individuals and the downstream effects of their psychiatric status. So we sort of grew up at a time when this was really coming into its own, and we developed a specific orientation. And the orientation is, is if your primary issue is neurologic, um, in all likelihood, you're going to benefit from having neurology in the lead on your care. And that's really been the structure and the drive. So um, our orientation is neurology forward with psychiatry, psychology, and the other uh, behavioral health disciplines uh, attended in an integrated fashion. Everybody's together, but for primary neurologic disorders, we want neurology in the lead. Uh, yeah, well, it's important work, and clearly, I, I think uh, pretty much all of our listeners, uh, you know, share the concerns about about this population. And um, you know, neurologists, uh, I, I'd say probably a lot of us, you know, geriatricians and post-acute long-term care aren't going to necessarily get a neurologist involved for, you know, what seem to be uh, behavioral issues and so on. Uh, and, and probably many of us are comfortable uh, prescribing for this, but I think it's a, it's a lovely idea. And if we had a lot more neurologists, it would be better yet. But um, i so obviously, your impetus for uh, exploring this issue seems pretty obvious. Uh, uh, you know, to assist in the management of these people and sort of optimize it. Uh, was there something beyond that uh, that that uh, called you to to do this study? Yeah, yeah, functionally suffering. Um, you know, we we're not going to, uh, in all likelihood, in my lifetime, come up with a magic bullet to sort these folks out. But I became very sensitized to the suffering. And when I'm doing um, typically public speaking in a lay environment, what I, what I describe is, in terms of the psychiatry for this population, uh, basically try and imagine the worst psychological day you ever had in your life and plug that into Groundhog Day. 
Uh, you're living right. this over and over and over again, and you don't have the cognitive firepower to work your way out of it. Um, the suffering's just horrible. And uh, it it turns out that there is something we can do about it that's highly effective and fairly benign. Uh, good, good. And I, I think uh, I, I love that, that the suffering uh, is front and center because I think sometimes um, people, especially some of the consumer advocates, and, and by the way, I noticed one of the charts uh, that you had in your uh or, or the graphs. I mean, it literally says a percent of drugging. I, I mean, it's that that favorite language that the consumer voice uses. I mean, you know, it's if it's antipsychotic medication, when I prescribe an antipsychotic for somebody, I'm not trying to drug them. Okay, I'm trying to relieve their suffering. I, I mean, for God's sake. But anyway, uh, I like your focus on that. And uh, so, were you? Did you have any challenges conducting the study? And and maybe uh, just say a little bit more about what the program actually is. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the program, uh, in the paper there are a series of steps that are outlined, and certainly um, a chunk of that is amenable to being subsumed by primary care. And uh, there's a, a fairly narrow body of mastery that's required. It's not like becoming a neurologist. This is highly tailored, and we've got primarily, like most folks in our space, NPs doing a lot of the, the uh, if you will, biochemical lifting. And the first thing is is diagnosis. Um, you know, we're, we're fond of saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And there's a tremendous amount of mythology about the diagnostic status of these folks that can be cleared up fairly simply. And one example is when we're teaching, we just tell people, there literally is no such thing as geriat geriatric onset schizophrenia. It doesn't exist. It's a it's a, an imaginary diagnosis. Um, and there are simple simple rules of the road that can get rid of most of the diagnostic confusion. Yeah, that would um, be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the impact of polypharmacy on folks' cognitive and psychiatric status. So cleaning up um, their medications makes a big difference. And the first tier, I mean, the neurology comes in layers, comes in tranches, and the first tier really is, is very straightforward. There's three classes of drugs, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, uh, uh, NMDA blocker, there's only one, memantine, and uh, appropriate use of a limited number of SSRIs, and you can make a huge change in the patient's clinical status just by following those three steps. There's some very complex neurology below that, but you can get half or two-thirds of the way home just by following that roadmap. Well, that, that sounds like a good thing, and, you know, keeping an antipsychotic for situations where they're truly warranted, really making them be a last resort because they are, I mean, they have carry so much uh, a negative baggage and risk and, and, and so on. Yeah. Well, you know, if you've got a distressed psychotic, regardless of the etiology of the psychosis, they're invaluable. I mean, you've got to use them. You don't have an option. But right. what we've discovered is that with this approach, you can eliminate or tremendously mitigate these distressing delusions and hallucinations 
before you get to the point where they actually need the antipsychotic. So it's it's really prophylactic as much as it is therapeutic. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, can you uh, just say a little bit more about the actual findings? And I, I think it was not a huge study. It was kind of limited to th uh, three facilities, but to me, the, the results look pretty impressive. So can you uh, uh, share that with our listeners? Sure. Um, we had uh, around 50 patients in the study, and we were able to eliminate antipsychotic utilization in 68% of these patients. Um, truthfully, we did not have that kind of an expectation going into the study in terms of the efficacy, but this was well-controlled. We had a super great operator who was helping us out. Uh, we had terrific pharmacy support. And yeah, it was close to 70% reduction. Uh, essentially, on a combined basis, we were well below 10% of the population who remained on antipsychotics. So it, it was really um, almost an order of magnitude reduction. It was really fun. Yeah, that's uh, those are outstanding results. And uh, maybe can you just say a little bit more about what the actual what, uh, the name of the program and and uh, just a little bit about what it consists of beyond what you said. Okay, uh, there there are basically what we know is that um, the if you are a dementia patient, if you're neurocognitively impaired in an LTC setting, the MDS data indicates essentially 100% of these folks will develop a psychiatric impairment. It's universal. Yeah. But only about 5% have a history of serious mental illness. So virtually all of these people are not really psychiatric patients. They're, they're essentially neurology patients with downstream psychiatric issues. And that's really the basis of it. And you want to try and make the best diagnosis that you can in terms of their primary neurologic etiology. And you want to dispel a number of the mythologies uh, that go with diagnosis. Because if you're carrying around a diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, appropriately you realize you're not going to get these folks off antipsychotics. If, on the other hand, they are demented, and they've got mixed dementia with Alzheimer's and, and micro and macrovascular disease, the probability of getting them stable to the point where they can eliminate the antipsychotics is actually very high. Uh, but when, when you're looking at them and see them as being an active psychotic, it's just, it's daunting. And it turns out if you've got the ability to go with it, it's, it's okay. You want to get rid absolutely of the anticholinergics, uh, virtually in their entirety, uh, you want to be sensitive to um, some of the other foibles. We know that dihydropyridone um, uh, calcium channel blockers can be associated with delirium, and obviously there are other medications that can create problems. You want to clean that up. And then, essentially, the default is that folks should go on an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor and memetine. That should be your default. There are obviously contraindications to that, uh, either or both. Uh, and we know that there are a few of these dementing illnesses that don't respond. Uh, the, the sort of the most classic example is frontotemporal lobar degeneration. Doesn't respond to this at all. 
But most of these actually, the common ones, which are going to be Alzheimer's uh, and Lewy body, along with the, the vascular component, will almost always respond. The, the latest change has been the addition of SSRIs. This almost comes out of the uh, research looking at serotonin as a driver in Lewy body psychosis associated with dementia with Lewy bodies and Parkinson's. It turns out that adding an SSRI is both preventative and mitigating for the dementia of, uh, I'm sorry, the psychosis of dementia. We tend not to add that automatically, but wait to look for changes that indicate the patient's beginning to slide into some psychiatric distress, and then we'll go ahead and add that. And it turns out that if you do that, you're going to make a significant improvement in these patients' incidence, prevalence, and severity of their BPSD. Uh, you can get a lot of really positive work done without going any further. There are other layers that are, frankly, a little more complicated. Um, uh, an example would be um, uh, epilepsy. We know that the epileptology of this population is very complicated. Uh, there's a very high incidence of non-convulsive epilepsy, which presents actually as behaviors. And to make it more complicated, they can be ictal or post-ictal. So there's a, some interesting neurology below that. But if you just pay attention to those first elements, it makes a huge difference. The program is you do diagnosis, pharmacologic cleanup, uh, primary and secondary neurologic treatment, and then you wait three to five months because most of these medications don't have an immediate obvious impact. Then you reassess them psychiatrically and psychologically, tweak the therapy according to that, and then move out from there. We are believers in uh, frequency, trumps, intensity. Um, virtually all of these people are uh, dynamically unstable. They have progressive disease. When we're teaching our people, we say, in all likelihood, month to month, you're never going to see the same patient twice. Mm. So you want to be able to keep an eye on them. And the trick for our perspective is most of the time they're going to announce before they actually get into trouble. And if you know the patient because you're in frequent contact with them, and it's very brief, you don't need to do actually, we don't think long sessions are indicated. We think they're actually contraindicated. But brief sessions frequently, they will tell you when they're about to get unstable, and you can then mm -hmm. make a positive move before they come off the rails. Uh, yeah. And that's basically yeah, would, the program. Um, yeah, I would think uh, CNAs a lot of times can be the ones to let you know something might be brewing too. But that's uh, that's uh, really wonderful stuff, and thanks for the practical, uh, you know, uh, I know some of us have been around for a while, never been too impressed with cholinesterase inhibitors or memantine, but it sounds like there's pretty good reasons to to use those, unless there's a good reason not to. And then, you know, maybe consider an SSRI uh, if if uh, there appears to be some deterioration. That's, that's really great practical uh, uh, guidance there. Yeah, uh, counterintuitively, the combination of uh, SSRI and I'm sorry, uh, acetylcholinesterase and memantine works much better for BPSD than it does for cognition. And uh -huh. you can continue this well into the uh, early early levels of late stage dementia 
uh, before you start backing off, and it's got a positive uh, psychiatric and psychological effect until fairly late in the condition. There's also another study, big study, comparing the three different acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that indicated that galantamine actually slowed the progression from moderate to severe dementia. Uh, we also know that uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors uh, actually will slow the transition from MCI, mild cognitive impairment, to dementia. The only element of that that's controversial, some people like giving them high-dose vitamin E, but I'm not sure about that. But they actually have a very significant role, even well outside the issue of cognitive support. Yeah, well, thank you for all that. I think that uh, our listeners, I, I am quite sure, will appreciate that. Paul, uh, any comments, questions? No, I uh, thank you very much, Steve. I guess my only question is how critical is nursing education um, for this process? Because as we all know, if the nurse um, gets panicky or doesn't understand the rationale, then the whole plan goes under. Well, I, you know, that's an absolutely first-level insight. Um, we, our single biggest challenge was getting all of the constituents in this to join hands, sing kumbaya, and jump in the pool together. Um, it, it, it really takes uh, a preemptive educational effort at the building level to get folks ready to um, absorb this change, uh, this paradigm shift, if you will. And, and because the medication exerts its positive impact over three to six months, they've got to be patient. Well, you know, we gave it to them and it's two weeks later and they're still bouncing off the walls. Yep. Take a deep breath, chant your mantra next two or three times and let's just keep going. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and frankly, it's the same thing with primary care. Uh, our, one of our big challenges was the primary care NPs, getting them to buy into this. And fortunately, the, the operator we did this with was just wonderful. We were actually blessed to have them as a as a driver, and uh, they were very, very supportive, which allowed us to make this work. Yeah, I would think, uh, you know, that could be a challenge because nurses, uh, you know, they, they want something that's going to relieve the distress immediately. And, uh, I mean, I wonder about going ahead and starting an antipsychotic along with the other interventions, and then it might make it easier to do a gradual dose reduction. Your thoughts on that, Steve? Well, I, you know, I think you have to treat what you see. If, if the yeah. patient's really critically unstable, you, you, you're obligated to, 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 to uh, address that. Uh, I, these are not mutually exclusive. Um, so we, we were looking at GDRs for these folks that really began 10 to 12 weeks into the end of the treatment. So we didn't really get to GDR these folks for at least two to three months. So you're, you know, yeah, you have to treat what's in front of you. Well, great. Uh, so that was uh, another great discussion. Steve, thank you so much for your great work on this important topic that's uh, really highly relevant to a lot of our clinical practices. Uh, so, you. Paul, we're going to, yeah, we're going to conclude with one last article for which I was hoping you'd be able to provide a synopsis. And this is by Dr. Dan Zhou and his colleagues from the Department of Pharmacy, National Clinical Research Center for Geriatrics at Sichuan University in Chengdu, China. 
And this paper is entitled Deprescribing Interventions for Older Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So another deprescribing paper, and what did it show? Yeah, thanks, Carl. And I think it, it kind of uh, follows uh, the discussion we just had. Uh, as you noted, the authors of this article examined the effects of deprescribing on clinical outcomes in older individuals. This was a meta-analysis and systematic review of randomized controlled trials, which included participants 60 years of age and older. Uh, of note, the clinical outcomes they were measuring included mortality, falls, emergency room visits, medication adherence, health-related quality of life, incidence of adverse drug reactions, potentially inappropriate medications, and potential prescription omissions. So they looked at a total of 32 RCTs, including over 18,000 subjects. Uh, what they found was deprescribing interventions significantly reduced the proportions of older adults with adverse drug reactions and potentially inappropriate medications and prescription omissions. The uh, intervention group also improved medication compliance. What it did not show is uh, significant changes in the other outcomes that many people assume will follow, like falls, mortality, et cetera. So while this study clearly demonstrating that deprescribing works, there are other recent reviews have shown that deprescribing is a challenging process. And I uh, will note uh, a systematic review by Dills and colleagues, also reported in jammed, although a few years ago, the November 2018 issue. And they noted that deprescribing success was often related to the drug class that you were targeting. It was most successful when pharmacy was leading the intervention. Uh, the review also suggested that deprescribing was expensive, required ongoing intensive interventions by the clinical teams, and like the child paper, often did not lead to expected outcomes, such as improved fall rates, cognition, quality of life, or lower uh, hospital admission rate. So I think the, the gist of these systematic reviews is that deprescribing does work. Uh, it's something that everyone in post-fetal long-term care uh, is sensitive to, um, and we should continue to do that, but it's not uh, it's not as simple as it sounds, and uh, like they said, certain drug classes may be more amenable to um, to deprescribing than others. Um, for example, PPIs are very difficult to deprescribe, as we all know. So uh, hopefully this will be of, uh, of interest to our listeners. Yeah, and, and you know, the results of this study are somewhat heartening, uh, although obviously there are some valid concerns there. I, I think... Probably all of us would agree as a general statement that in geriatrics and, and beyond, uh, you know, less medication is better. And we certainly do see a lot of inappropriate medication orders and prescribing cascades in post-acute and long-term care, you know, sliding scale insulin. You mentioned PPIs, probably a lot of supplements and things that, that really aren't, aren't uh, helping and may be harming. And, and then probably continued overuse of at least some psychotropics. Benzos, uh, but to the extent any of us, especially in our role as medical director, can figure out ways to reduce unnecessary medications that doesn't require extensive resources, I, I think we should all, you know, continue to do that. Do do our chart audits and uh, check the metrics. Uh, I, I think that's easy. And I know that AMDA's 
the the drive to deprescribe was quite successful and had literally thousands of U.S. nursing homes that benefited from its guidance. And you can still find those resources at paltc.org slash D2D, like D numeral 2D hyphen meeting hyphen archives. Uh, so just uh, for our readers that might want to take a look at that. Um, and Kyle, I was going to mention briefly, the, um, yeah. the flip side of the coin is that uh, the prescription omissions that uh, Chow find found, there are many drugs we should be using and we're not using. So there, there, there is a flip side to this as well. About like bisphosphonates or? Uh, bisphosphonates, a, a lot of the cardiac um, medications, uh, et cetera. Yeah, great. Well, um, Paul and uh, uh, our other guests, uh, any any final comments before we wrap up? Yeah, done. No. All okay. right. All right. Well, uh, listen, it's been great. Uh, really, a lot of meat on today's bones. Uh, so I really appreciate it. That's going to wrap it up for this Jammed on the Go podcast. I'd like to thank our guest presenters again for a great discussion. Thanks, as always, to our editors and staff from Elsevier, whose efforts continue to generate one great jam to volume after another with a great impact factor. Uh, and I hope that uh, will continue. Uh, Paul, thanks for your great work. You and Barb are, are doing fantastic. Uh, so please take a look at the November 2023 issue. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda On The Go and wishing everyone a wonderful holiday season. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining a BPLM, pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. <laughs>